0: So excited to have Stephanie Zamora, the Advocacy Director of the Colibri Center for Human Rights here in Tucson to talk about the work that she does with Colibri, how she came to do this work, and why it's so important. So, Stephanie, do you want to say hello to, or also should I call you staff Steph or Stephanie, because you sign off at Steph, but then you're... Um, whichever Stephanie, one.
1: Whichever one. Most people just call me Steph. Don't know why, but it's always been like that. So whichever one you prefer.
0: Okay, I actually do prefer Steph, but I I don't know. I was like, you know, if you go by Stephanie, I will respect (laughs) that.
1: No, that's okay. everyone calls me Steph. (laughs) Okay, cool. Yeah, hi everyone. My name is Stephanie Zamora. I'm the Advocacy Director at the Colibri Center for Human Rights. We are a non-governmental nonprofit with the mission to end disappearance and uphold human dignity along the U.S.-Mexico border. Uh, we accompany families of disappeared migrants in their search for them uh, through DNA uh, testing, investigative uh, forensic investigation, uh, family accompan- accompaniment, and advocacy.
0: That's really great. Thank so much for sharing that. And also before going forward, I just wanted to give you a little shout out because I saw in your bio that you're a first gen college grad. And that's something that so I am as well. And that's something that I definitely talk about a lot on the podcast. So i wanted to give you a little shout out for that. And then also recognize that you also immigrated here from yes. Sinaloa, Mexico. Yes. And I've heard that that informs the work that you do and, and what brought you to do the work here at Colibri.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for for the shout out. You know, it's appreciated. Yeah, I came from Sinaloa when I was three years old in nineteen ninety-eight with my mom. She was about twenty one years old and you know, we, we made that same journey that a lot of the folks that we are searching for made and we were given a fortune that I believe doesn't belong to me and that I have, I have to share with others now because I did wow. make it safely. You know, it, it did take us a week to cross and it was scary. Yeah. And I, I was only three years old, but I vividly remember that crossing and I believe it was
0: because,
1: you know, I was, I was terrified. I'm I'm sure my mom was too, but, um, it was a risk that she was willing to make for us to have a better life here. And I think the life that I've been blessed with and and given and worked for is, is like I said, it's to share with others that, that education that I was able to get, this fortune that I've been given to work at Colibri, to be an advocate, to be an activist. That's something that Mm -hmm. I believe is meant to be shared with those that didn't meet that same fate that I did.
0: Yeah, and you're doing the work is so amazing and so inspiring to hear. Uh, So I wanted to kind of dig in more to the specific work that Colibri does. And I wanted to ask if you could explain Colibri's DNA collection program. Yeah,
1: so um, like I said, Colibri works kind of in two halves. Our first half is forensic science and investigation. And our other half is family accompaniment and advocacy so in our um half of of our work we take very detailed missing persons reports of folks that have been reported to have last been seen alive crossing the u.s mexico border and specifically Mm -hmm. we are able to help uh, families whose loved ones disappeared in southern arizona uh through our partnership with the uh, pima county office of the medical examiner they Mm -hmm. are a governmental agency we are not but we work together to, mm-hmm. like I said, first of all, file these missing persons reports that are very, very detailed about yeah. the the whereabouts of a person that we're searching for, where they were last seen alive. Mm-hmm. Just very, very detailed questions about their physical uh, appearance, if, it, if they've had right. any surgeries, any medical issues. Um, mm-hmm. And we are able to share that with the medical examiners. If we find family members that are eligible to take a DNA sample, and by eligible, I mean, uh, parents, siblings, children, and even half-siblings of the missing person, we are able okay. to sample them for DNA and compare their uh, DNA to the DNA of the 1,200 unidentified individuals that have been found um, along our borderland.
0: Oh, is it only nuclear family members that are able to give the DNA samples?
1: Yes, because we work with a private lab, um, that, that's kind of the structure that they follow. Um, They're able to compare DNA of, like I said, parents, children, siblings, and sometimes half-siblings of the missing person. There are other offices that we work with, Uh, for example, the New York Office of the Medical Examiner. We have Mm -hmm. a partnership with them, too, and they are able to uh, sample extended family members like cousins, for example. Our wife isn't able to do that, but we do have a partnership with New York. And it's for families specifically looking for their loved ones outside of Arizona, whether that's uh, Texas or California they're able, and if they live in the in the tri-state area or in New York, they are able to go to the office, give their sample, and we'll be in collaboration with the New York Medical Examiner to see if they are able to find uh, the remains of their loved one. Um, and that's because New York has access to a much bigger database than we do. Like I said, we okay. have access to information of People that have passed away tragically along the southern Arizona border with Mexico. Um, mm-hmm. And that's because we are a nonprofit, because the New York Medical Examiner is a governmental agency. They're able to uh, compare their DNA samples to CODIS, which is the federal FBI DNA database of unidentified persons. So, yeah, back, back to Colibri. Yeah, we help families whose loved ones disappeared in Arizona. And the way our DNA program kind of works is that we'll either go in person to major cities uh, like. San Francisco, Los Angeles, Phoenix, New Mm -hmm. York to sample folks. And if they're not within our reach or if families have, uh, you know, issues with being mobile due to their immigration status, or they're just too far from these big cities, Mm -hmm. we've implemented a a mail kit program where we mail the DNA kits to the families and include a DVD with um, really detailed instructions about how to take their, their DNA sample. And we try to make it as easy and as streamlined as possible. Um, and it's not very difficult. We use uh, saliva, so it's pretty easy to take on yourself. And like I mentioned to you, uh, our DNA and missing migrant program director, Mirsa Montorroso, she is actually from Guatemala. So she's made a few trips now to Guatemala to collect samples there as well, which is really, really powerful. Oh. imagine that's so far away from from Arizona. So it's a little yeah. bit of a chance and hope to find answers about what happened to someone's love on that potentially died on the border.
0: Yeah, so how does she get in contact with the families in Guatemala?
1: So families contact us. We have many ways that families can contact us, which is through our website, really luckily we're we're getting a new website that we're going to launch this year but traditionally families contact us whether that's through Facebook our website or by phone and they leave messages about you know they're searching for their loved one and we get in contact with them and that's when we begin the the process of taking the intake seeing if they're eligible for DNA how we can get that to them where we can meet them in the middle to be able to give them as much Resources as possible. Obviously, there's there's going to be times where we contact families who were not able to necessarily help because of mm-hmm. either where their loved one disappeared, or mm-hmm. um, where they are. But we're always trying to build up our resource guide to direct families in a direction where they could potentially get answers, whether even if it's not
0: from us. Yeah. Are you aware of other nonprofits that are doing this similar work in other states where you all don't have reach?
1: So in. In the United States, we are the only organization doing this type of work. Um, there wow! There are other there are other That's organizations that. That's also work. Amazing. On yeah, your part. We, yeah, it's it's really unique and and really special, and I think it's mm-hmm. it just shows this lack of uh, structures built in place for people that are experiencing this unnecessary suffering. But we do have other partners in the mm-hmm. United States that kind of work in tandem with us, and. And we consider our partners. Uh, One of those would be the South Texas Human Rights Center. Um, They Mm -hmm. have access to our database of missing persons. So if families contact them, they're able to put that information into our database and we can share that. Mm -hmm. We also work with the Argentine Forensic Anthropology Team. They're uh, headquartered in New York, but they do work in Central America and Mexico. They do the Mm -hmm. same work that Colibri does, but outside of the United States. And we, again, we we have a partnership with them. They can access our database. We're always in conversation with their their folks and we're trying to always build up our partnership to make sure that we're getting families answers where, you know, one organization can't reach or where we can't reach.
0: Mm-hmm. So this is the organization that is from Argentina?
1: Yeah, they're the foreign, Argentine Forensic Anthropology Team. They uh, started They started when Argentina had their civil, their civil war and um, oh, they were trying oh, to identify uh, the thousands of people that were disappeared by the regime. Um, but right. now they do that that sort of work in um, Mexico and Central America.
0: Wow, that's so powerful because like, this country responding after having lived through terrible dictatorship that was notorious and mm-hmm. for specifically disappearing so many people, and to now be doing that work in Mexico and Central America right now is, is really powerful. I So Absolutely. they. So are they, when they're in Mexico and Central America, are they looking for, who, who are they looking for that has been disappeared specifically?
1: So they, um, so they, and speaking about our partnership, they can go and sometimes sample families that have contacted us whose family members disappeared either in Mexico, on the Mexico side of the border or in another state of the border. That's not Arizona it can help us there oh. sometimes and sometimes it can help like i said folks that have disappeared within mexico there's other organizations that also help in mexico mm-hmm. that um for uh people that were victims of crime per se mm-hmm. that that can be of service to families in mexico as well and we like i said we have a resource guide that we provide families with call us and it's going to be um on our new website as well where they can know and and we've broken it down in a way that that is accessible for families in terms of how does this geography look? You know, Did your family member go missing in Mexico? Here are all the resources you can contact in Mexico because we're not able to intervene at that point, right? Did your family member disappear in California, Arizona, New Mexico, Texas? Here are all the resources that exist within there and broken down by timeline. So, you know, if if your loved one has been missing for about one to 15 days, there's still a chance for a search and rescue type of operation to be to be launched in their search, right? So you can contact search and rescue groups like Águilas del Desierto, Ángeles del Desierto, no more deaths. If it's been beyond that and you believe your family member's in detention, we're trying to con- uh, connect families directly to phone numbers and access to the detention centers or uh, uh, agencies that will know if their loved one is in detention. And beyond mm-hmm. that, you know, if if they do wanna pursue um, our help, we're, we're, we, uh, we welcome that where, wherever your family member uh, disappeared, where, you're welcome to leave us missing persons report but with you know the transparency and understanding that there might be other agencies that might be better to help better help you if you don't have a case within Arizona
0: right yeah that's so amazing that's such an important resource and I'm glad to be interviewing you now so that people will hear more about this resource right One of uh, During that meeting that you and I were both in, you mentioned that Tima County Medical Examiner's Office takes a humane approach to identifying bodies in the desert. And so I wanted to ask if you could outline what that is and explain how that's unique.
1: Right. So I'll start by kind of prefacing the work of Colibri. So- Our One of our co-founders and former executive director, Dr. Robin Reineke, she started an internship back when she was in grad school at the Pima County Medical Examiner's Office, and this was in 2006. And her kind of duties were to document all these calls and messages that families were leaving, searching for their loved ones that had disappeared along the border, and they were inquiring as to whether their bodies had been found and brought to the medical examiner's office. So work kind of started in, in 2006. And the work of Colibri kind of builds on a legacy of work that was already being done in the borderlands by groups such as Coalición de Derechos Humanos, No More Deaths. Their work has been around, right, as well. Yeah. Where Colibri kind of comes in in a unique way is through our DNA program. We're able to provide that for families, right? And as the years went on, they realized that this is a much bigger problem that they, than they originally thought it was because the files just kept right. growing and growing and growing over mm-hmm. the years. That, Like I said, the doctors have always... Approach this in a humanitarian way, they understand that these are human beings whose families are looking for them, regardless of where they came from, regardless of whether they crossed the border or not. They're human Mm -hmm. beings at the end of the day that deserve a dignified burial, and their families deserve Mm -hmm. to have peace and understand what happened. That's kind of the basis of where these doctors are working from, which I feel Mm -hmm. like is really unique and special because they are a governmental agency. They, I, we believe that they're extending themselves beyond what their duties call them to do. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, in 2016, Colibri uh, became official nonprofit with this collaboration with the medical examiners. But it started as a volunteer project with our former director in, uh, when she was in grad school.
0: Yeah, I think I would reframe that they're doing more than what they're supposed to do by saying that they're setting a new baseline for other medical examiners offices to replicate because like you're saying there's deaths that are occurring um you know everywhere along the border in other states as well and not every county medical examiner's office that is that is dealing with this crisis of deaths in the desert is dealing with it in this way as you're saying it is unique but i think that they're setting an they're setting an example for what other medical examiners' offices should do.
1: Absolutely. Their advocacy work, we're we are kind of working on that too with members of Congress to write a bill that would effectively retroactively fund or give funds in the future to medical examiners' offices along the border to do this exact work. So mm-hmm. we're working on that. You know, when, you, when you're talking about advocacy work and legislation, that obviously moves a lot slower um, than we'd like Yeah. But it's mm-hmm. th- that intention is still there. And I do believe that the Pima County Medical Examiner's Office did set that precedent that this work absolutely needs to be done. This was mm-hmm. a death that happened in your jurisdiction, and you need to investigate uh, it and figure out who this person was. And I if, I think sometimes I try to frame it in a way where it can make sense to folks that aren't necessarily familiar with the border by saying, you know, what if someone just unfortunately died in the middle of a city where people just walk past their body for, for years? absolutely not that shouldn't happen in the desert just because it's out of our sight
0: either Mm -hmm. definitely so i guess getting more into the context of sex in the desert i just wanted to point out that this has been an ongoing crisis you know, particularly given increased agent presence, checkpoints, surveillance towers, and cameras that lead migrants into the most dangerous parts of the desert in order to arrive in the US. Absolutely. Summer temperatures in the storm desert can be as high as 120 degrees, and winter temperatures can fall below 32 degrees, it's really harsh terrain. And so this is something that is directly related to increased border militarization. Can you speak on that?
1: Absolutely. Whenever groups come visit us from places that are not the border, we tend to explain that this has been an issue for at least the past 25 years. This isn't something new that popped up with our current administration and actually Mm -hmm. has been supported and propped up by by bipartisan administrations. We also uh, try to educate folks on when this started, which we believe to be with the 1994 Border Patrol strategic plan that says exactly what you just said. That the the landscape, the temperatures, the geography of our borderlands can be deadly because of Mm -hmm. the temperatures, because of the animals that exist, because of the actual terrain. Mm
0: -hmm. And they
1: knew that. And they effectively weaponized that against migrating people. And in the Border Patrol Strategic Plan, it says violence of the strategy will, or it says violence will increase as effects of the strategy are felt. So this was anticipated. This was right. premeditated. And I believe that we should call things by their name, right? And I believe this to be premeditated mass murder or mass violence against brown yeah. bodies. Right. Um, to your question, we we do try to educate people that, that talk to Colibri. And in, in our messaging, we try to explain that this has been a problem for at least the past 25 years. This isn't new. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. getting worse. And and actually, mm. the folks that work with us at Uh, medical examiner's office kind of frame it in that way too. One of the, or the chief investigator, his name is Gene Hernandez. He investigates homicides in Pima County. So he's a detective, right? But he calls the deaths that happen in the border, he calls them homicides and that they should be Uh investigated. There is a party or people responsible for these deaths because they are premeditated. They are not accidental. They're meant to send a message. Do not come here. You're not welcome here. And your punishment for doing so is death right mm-hmm. so i think like i said i think we should really call things by their name and say what what it is because at this point right. we have experienced nearly 10,000 deaths that we know of on the border that's just what we know of remains that have been found we believe that number to be a vast undercount and we yeah. know that there's more bodies that and, and remains that have not been recovered um right. so I, again, like I, I, I always come back to framing it in a way that people might understand the gravity and the severity of this problem. Mm-hmm. I recently went, was able to go to the 9/11 Memorial Museum in New York, and there, mm-hmm. there inside there is a a black sort of structure that has the names and photographs of all the victims of 9/11, right, which were about 3,000 human beings that didn't deserve to die, right. Mm-hmm. And I go back to thinking, you know, there are about three or four of these that could exist on our on our border of people that right. have been killed by these pol- these inhumane, racist, and xenophobic policies. Right. Um, and I feel like if we were able to frame it and demonstrate that, it might it might make sense to people that don't understand the severity of this issue.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, this. Just- I don't know if you've been following the American Dirt controversy.
1: Yeah, I have.
0: Yeah, so Janine Cummins referred to migrants as faceless brown masses that she was going to give a face to. And I think her framing is a perfect reflection of white supremacy right because like you said the there's a structure with pictures and names of dedicated to every victim whereas in the context of the border if your loved one died on the Mexican side of the desert and they did not have US legal status and you want to bring their body to bury them here you have to put them in cargo Right, it's just severe dehumanization and like it's just there isn't the same level of outrage for their deaths that there is for the deaths of people who were victims on 9-11
1: right and I feel like going back to what she said about giving a face to those people they they do have a face they do have voices right right and it it doesn't necessarily take It's just unfortunate and really sad, honestly, that people believe that a white person is the one that should be amplifying their voice or their face. It's not right, because they have their own voice. And actually, Mm -hmm. at Colibri, we have a um, storytelling project called Historias y Mm Recuerdos, where we're doing exactly that. We're giving the mic to families and allowing them a space to fully share this experience that they're having, that they're living firsthand, Right. And again, mm-hmm. going back to our new website, those those stories will be available on our website for people to hear. Um, they're kind Definitely. of in a podcast form. And These are families anywhere from Arizona, California, New Jersey, these are families that are out that have maybe already found their loved one or um, are still in, in active search of them, right? Um, mm-hmm. It just takes a little bit more effort to kind of search for those and look for those, but they do exist. I mean, it's, colibri alone, We, we house about 4,000 missing persons reports on our database. Those are, and if you think of, you know, that one person that's missing, they're not just tied to the person that reported them, they're tied to an entire family, a community, friends, co-workers, one person could have, their disappearance could have affected 100 people. Right. So what about all their voices? Those do exist. And I think that resources and attention and time is not allocated to them because for some reason, the suffering and the, yeah, the suffering of, of, of our people is somehow more palatable and more understandable when a white person talks about
0: it. Right. Which is disgusting. And a reflection of the person who's unable to empathize with other human beings. That's that's the problem on their end. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But... You, you mentioned that there the the death in the desert crisis has been going on for, you know, over twenty five years. And that this you you note that this is not something that's a product of this administration, which I think is really important to note because there's a lot of people who are just now coming to realize how horrible our immigration system is and think that a lot of it is the product of Trump, which it's really not. He just made a lot of things worse. So, but I did want to ask if you have seen an increased number of deaths with Trump's policy changes like remain in Mexico that really have created so much more death and violence at the border?
1: I'm not really sure if I can answer that just because I don't have um, up-to-date numbers on the number of deaths that occurred in 2019. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. But I can, I can definitely like send that into you afterwards if you want.
0: Oh yeah that'd be good and then we can put that in the show notes and people can take a look.
1: But to kind of answer that from From an advocacy point of view, we know that people are being put in danger. There have been stories in the media that show that this policy is literally killing people, whether it's on the Mexico side, or people get so desperate that they cross by whatever means that are available to them, and they meet a very unfortunate death. I mean, we look at the story of Valeria and and Oscar, who tragically died in the river, and Mm they're... The image of their death was displayed around the entire world in a very inhumane very dehumanizing disgusting way that we would never ever mm-hmm. ever publicize as colibri right yeah um, we know that the- these things are happening there have been multiple reports there is human rights organizations on both sides of the border documenting these abuses and and really showing that this is deadly. And that's the point. And I believe that remain in Mexico is just another kind of recycled tactic of of mm-hmm. these administrations that are xenophobic and racist towards migrants, right? It, it's just a recycled thing. So, and the way I say that is, be- and the reason I say that is because, you know, folks are crossing, say, in Arizona. Um, it's not done like this now, but folks are crossing through Arizona and being sent to El Paso and then to Juarez. That is right. kind of identical to lateral deportation, which they claim they don't do anymore. This Can't is just like you
0: know?
1: right. it's It's when someone crosses a certain point uh, point of the desert, they are apprehended, and then they are deported to another side of the border. say they crossed through Texas. now they're deported through the California border in an effort to disorient and, mm. yeah, to disorient the migrant and have them not cross again. But that has led to the disappearance of thousands of people. and probably their deaths as well. Um, wow. So I, I see Remain in Mexico and the tactics that they use to move people across borders and disorient them as kind of a recycling of lateral deportation.
0: Yeah, I think that that idea of recycling policies that have already been enacted by the U.S. government is really important. I, I'm trying to read this article that, of course, because of academia, you have to pay for, but it's called... <laughs> Yeah, I'm trying to get my friend to download it because she's a PhD. <laughs> I'm like, this sucks. Academia sucks. But this abstract is very fire. <laughs> the the article is called Offshore Migration Control Guatemalan Trans and the Construction of Mexico as a Buffer Zone. And this mm-hmm. professor, Alavaquel Mignan, talks about how what's occurring now with Mexico being a quote buffer state as in Mm -hmm. being a state that just places hell obstacles in the place in the face of migrants trying to move northwards is something that was done in the 70s that started in the 70s went on through the 80s and also and I just find it interesting also that in both of those historical time periods it was Central American Mm -hmm. bodies in particular that were moving northward and and I, I point that out just because I just feel like there is a very specific type of xenophobia that occurs against Central Americans and I think we're reliving what already occurred in many ways in the 80s and we're not we're not recognizing it for what it for what it was then and what it is now and I think that's so dangerous.
1: Yeah absolutely and going back to your point that you know Mexico is acting as sort of like a buffer zone. hmm Mexico is complicit in the violence that that is happening to migrants, especially Central American migrants. And, I mean, we saw all over the media when they put up the National Guard and barricades on the southern Mexico border. I mean, what's mm-hmm. happening or what has happened here? It's the same exact replica of what happened on our border. And because of economic incentives, Mexico takes aside side. Of the United States to enact the same violence that is being enacted on Mexican migrants on Central American migrants, and right. I think that as a Mexican our woman, as a Mexican or a person that was born in Mexico and migrated here, it's my duty to call that out. You know, our, our our country, Mexico, is just as complicit in this violence as the United States is.
0: Yeah, thank you for that. You no, know, I I do get disappointed when. I see that people aren't able to apply that same kind of anti-border militarization analysis to the Mexican nation state. And I think that moving to Tucson, I've, I've actually come to have a more practical understanding of the distinctions between a country like Mexico or government like Mexico's government and governments that are in Central America. Mexico has in North, like, way more resources than Central American governments do. And like, I see in Tucson that, and in, in Phoenix as well, that the Mexican consulate does so much more for migrants than anything that Central American consulates are trying to do for migrants mm-hmm. there. And I, I just think, and and this is very complicated, right? Because the Mexican government also is complicit in, The U.S. returning Mexican asylum seekers, in so much historical violence against Mexican indigenous or sorry indigenous communities living in Mexico. So I I know that it's complicated, but I I do think that these the the difference in resources needs to be recognized, right? Because Mm -hmm. that that does have very concrete distinct concrete outcomes for people dependent on what country they're from. And if we care about racism, if we care about xenophobia, we need to care about these things, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, we, we see that in our work too when it comes to repatriation. When it comes to just like processes in general that we we follow with the consulate. So like Colibri has partnership with the Pima County Medical Examiners. We also work obviously with the consulates and we see that disparity in kind resources when it comes to repatriations because folks that you know are of mexican nationality that are identified can be returned relatively quicker than folks that are from central america which is really unfortunate and it comes down to the resources and the timelines that these consulates are working on and sometimes that's hard for families to understand Um,
0: right
1: you know they they expect you know if they got the news already that their loved one died they should be back in their country to be buried within two weeks, and sometimes that that does not happen.
0: Yeah, I'm thinking now about how these prison, these carceral systems, both prison and immigration detention centers, and I guess through this example you were just bringing up the larger immigration system, racializes people to the point of stoking intergroup discrimination. Does that make sense because it's it, it's kind of it's a process of racialization, I guess, because the government decides arbitrarily to treat you differently based on what country you come from. And that affects how you're able to lead your life and, and then also impacts how you see yourself and how you see others, right? Like you're just, you just wonder why it is that Mexicans are able to unite with their families earlier. And I think it stokes a lot of resentment and it's really important to have an analysis of how it is nation states enacting this violence and that only calls for more interpersonal solidarity.
1: Absolutely. I see that too. I think obviously it's not to say that Mexican migrants aren't being hurt and targeted and victimized by violence, but we we have to be honest about this conversation. Central American migrants are experiencing the blunt Force of this violence and we have to say that
0: and Mm -hmm.
1: I'm glad I'm having this conversation with you because you know I I come from Mexico I experienced that that immigration story and and Mm -hmm. I think even this conversation is is powerful and and useful in this greater conversation of solidarity between Mm -hmm. Mexicans and Central Americans Mm -hmm. which I think right now is close to non-existent sadly.
0: I, I think it's there. People are trying. Um, yeah. I definitely, Yeah, I definitely know and recognize a lot of folks who are very vocal on social media, who are Mexican mm-hmm. and who do talk about the violence that the nation state is enacting on Central American migrants. But I think also I see so much backlash on those posts as well. So, you know, it's yeah. just if the conversation needs to continue, and and more people need to be sat down and talked to.
1: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Sometimes that's people in our families, so just saying. Yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah. It's it's always within our families, and the revolution starts at home. So mm-hmm. I, you know, it's really hard, but we do have to have those conversations with our family members. So switching gears a little bit, but still talking about families, I wondered what you do for families who haven't found their loved ones and it's been years Mm -hmm. because I think that that's a particular kind of grief that's different than death uh, Mm -hmm. because of the uncertainty so can you speak to that
1: yeah so for all families that are searching and waiting for answers we have uh, the family network which is why we're here in California we're going to meet with the Bay Area Family Network Committee and then we're moving on to Los Angeles to meet with them as well And this is Mm -hmm. a spaces and and communities that we have helped build up alongside families to provide mutual support and solidarity amongst each other. You know, there are families that have found their loved ones, fortunately, Mm -hmm. but there are families who, like like you said, have been searching for years and there isn't much hope for an answer. But we do open up these spaces and they exist in uh, Bay Area, L.A., Phoenix, Tucson and New York, which is where we have the biggest concentrations of cases. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. And. At these spaces, people are able to share that grief that, that we call ambiguous loss. It's not the same as having a loved one that, mm, that passed away. Loss. And you can mm. grieve their death because you know that they are buried in a certain location. And you know that, that there's no other answer. They passed away and that's it, right? When you're dealing with someone that's disappeared, that's a different type of grief. It it comes with a lot of uncertainty, with a lot of anxiety and a lot of of questions, right? That just remain floating and unanswered. And we recognize that as an organization, and that's one of the driving forces behind the the family network is that folks are dealing with ambiguous loss in a different type of grief that they need to be able to connect with with other folks. You know, we me and and my colleague Perla Torres, who's the family network director, we we're not experiencing this, right? We can accompany accompany families and w- through our education and through our training as as, pe- as staff of Polibri, we can accompany them and bring them together. But we, we're never going to be able to share in that in that experience. And that's wh- why we have to bring other families together to be able to talk about and share this experience with one another.
0: Yeah, I think that's really powerful. And it shows how you, as an organization, really understand this bullshit of, like, people not having voices or faces. It's like, mm-hmm. actually, yes, they're directly impacted, so they should lead, period.
1: Right, right. And that's how we kind of structure our organization. We The families lead this. Their stories, their testimonies, their experiences, and their needs and desires is what guides all of our work. Because, like I said, we can never talk for them. We, we're we basically, we think of ourselves as people that are going to find, you know, the loudest mic and the loudest speaker and hand it to them so they can speak their truth and affect change. Right. Because the people closest to the problem have the best solutions. And that's what that's how we work. And that's what we believe.
0: Right, that concept of passing the mic is exactly it. Like we don't, you don't need to ghostwrite somebody's voice. (laughs) Just pass the mic. (laughs) They're there, I promise you. Sadly, they exist. Right, they exist, right. Okay, so this has been an amazing interview. I don't want to take up too much of your time since I know that you are working. Is there anything that you felt like we didn't touch on that you wanted to speak on?
1: No, not really. We're just really excited for 2020. Colibri is moving in a, in a very exciting direction. We're just really, really proud and, and honored to be able to work alongside these families and, and help mm-hmm. them in whatever way that we can.
0: And what direction is that?
1: So we we've hired new staff. We have Feldla, who's the new Family Network director. We're in search of a new executive director. So I'm just really excited to see how Colibri blooms. And we we are a very new organization. I mean, the work has existed for decades, but Colibri itself only started in 2016. So this is another mm-hmm. chance at at growth and at change in a positive way. I think.
0: Yeah, that's really awesome. Cool. So thank you so much, Steph, for taking the time to speak with me. Yeah. And maybe, thank you so much. Yeah. Maybe we can have you back on the podcast in the future.
1: I hope so. Thank you so much.
0: (laughs) Okay. Bye, Steph.
1: Bye.